0: Uh, welcome to Call and Shots. I'm Seth Partnow. Uh, I'm joined today by a return guest, um, someone who I always in, enjoy chatting with and, and reading. Uh, Caitlin Cooper of Indie Corn Rose and some other places. Uh, last week, uh, first of all, Caitlin, thanks for coming on, and, and how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back. It's been a minute.
0: It, it has, although it's uh, time in, in the off season. Time seems to lose all meaning. <laughs> Very true. Um, So you wrote a. I, I mean, speaking of time losing no meeting, it was last week, correct? That you uh, you published a, a, a super interesting piece looking at um, Tyrese Halliburton and and some unique aspects of his passing.
1: Correct. Last Wednesday it was, as I recall.
0: Um. So but without instead of me trying to summarize it, uh, why don't you you know you summarize kind of what what you were looking at and sort of what you found.
1: Yeah, so basically, pretty shortly after the Pacers acquired Tyrese Halliburton at the trade deadline, like I had done research on him in order to write, you know, hey, the Pacers made this trade. But not even I, I don't think, was expecting how often he would leave his feet as a passer. So the first, very first few games he was playing, I was like, wow, he's he's leaving his feet all the time. And in the back of my head, I'm like, that's going to be a really cool article to – to track that and see what happens. But, you know, covering a beat, there really wasn't time during the season for me to get to that. And with the way the Pacers off season has gone between, you know, the eight and offer sheet and other stuff that they've been involved in, I kind of had to wait until, you know, after summer league to really dive into it. So basically what I did is I went back, he played 26 games for the Pacers, which is equates to about, you know, 930 minutes watched all those minutes back while admittedly, I fast forwarded through all of the defensive into the floor and, Watched for every time that he left his feet and then just kept clipping those until I got to the end of the 26 games and then really, you know, had to save those clips, catalog them, and try to figure out, like, what is this telling me? Is it meaningful? Is it something that helps the Pacers? Is it something that hurts the Pacers? And hopefully people got a handle on that when they read it. So,
0: I believe, if I remember correctly, there were 248 times where he jumped in the air to pass.
1: Yes, 248.
0: Yeah, which is which is... 10 a game, basically, um, in, in, in the games he played for them. And this is something that, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you were, you were uh, it was drilled into you as a young age as it was me that, that you never leave your feet to pass. Um, why is he able to do it? Well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bearing the lead a little bit. Uh, he's very good, he's very effective when, when he actually gets in the air and, and, and looks to pass.
1: Right. I think this is a great question because the youth coach community was was very angry about this article yeah. and wanting to differentiate that, you know, what applies to to the pros doesn't necessarily apply to what you should be teaching kids. And, and I agree with that. I'm not prescribing to the youth coaches how they should, you know, go about their teaching because Tyrese has a few things working in his favor that makes this a very effective method for him to playmake for other people. So number one, which I didn't even really touch on that much in the article is that his floater is very effective, particularly right inside the free throw line in the non-restricted area. I think that's in a conversion rate of about 45%. So when he jumps to go to that, defenses are going to respond. It's not just anybody taking a floater where you're like, okay, bud, go ahead and loft that up there. We're going to stay back with you know the lob threat or whoever the roll man is. So that's kind of factor number one. Factor number two is that his eye manipulation is just so impressive on the weak side of the floor. I mean, his eye manipulation all the time. I think if you go back and watch all of his passes or if people did like I did, there's very few times where he's staring down his target without intention. Um, so that is there. And then also his athleticism. Like if you just watch him by comparison to Malcolm Brogdon on like a baseline drive, and he's leaping, which you'll see in the article, it looks like he's, you know, a track star going over a hurdle. So he has a lot of hang time where if his first read isn't there, he can still make the next read on the way down. Whereas, you know, if it's Malcolm, he's not getting near to that degree of air. And he really has to, you know, have the corner shooter open so that he can make that direct line pass.
0: It's it's a combination of, I think, that that, that and also his his sort of size and, and, and length means that he, like, essentially he has more angles that he can throw these passes. And as you say, sort of more time with which to do so.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because I mean, and that's what's so interesting, because I wanted to categorize all of these passes by type, and one of the times that he passes from the air most frequently is when he's getting trapped or he sees a blitz coming. So yeah, he has, you know, this really lanky wingspan, he's also bigger for his size at the point guard position, but he also wants to get, you know, gain height in those situations so that he can get the ball out very quickly and very easily, and and that shines through a lot when you're watching it. In fact, when I track those, when he does a jump pass against a blitz, he never turned the ball over. Like he did turn the ball over against blitzes, but not on a jump pass.
0: So I, that, that strikes me that there's another piece of this as well is that, he, that you mentioned the word uh, uh, intention, I think earlier when you're talking about his, his, you know, not staring down a receiver. It seems like he's, he's not, this isn't a situ- These aren't situations where he kind of runs out of room and jumps in the air and has to bail himself out. It's, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a conscious. This is the best way to get the ball where I know it needs to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the best way to put it. It's not him, you know, jumping in the air and running out of ideas. It's him jumping the air because he has an idea. So, I mean, the one clip that you'll see in the first section when I'm talking about this, when you watch him, he definitely has an outside in progression in that he eyes the kick out opportunity trying to shift tertiary defenders to the outside so that he can hit the big under the basket in a lot of situations. Like, you know, Lance Stevenson's the most open person on the floor. That's where you would think the ball's going to go. But Tyrese is looking at that and thinking, you know, if I look over there, the tagger's going to go, and then I can get Terry Taylor, who shot 65% on twos right under the basket. So when he's leaping, he definitely has – there's method in why he's doing it.
0: And he's basically – he's got – uh I don't know if you've ever watched. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of it. Every four years in the Olympics, team handball, um, where, where it like it seems like a key aspect is, is guys will come or people will come running down the floor, jump up in the air with the ball in their hands, and kind of wait for someone to commit and know they have until they land to sort of decide what to do with the ball. And it seems like I'm throwing. I'm I'm going to throw it to the corner if you don't go there. But I have this whole time I'm up in the air waiting for you to take that step. And as soon as I see you take that step, I'm dumping it off for a layup.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a perfect comparison. I haven't, I'm not an expert in the handball arena, but I have, I have watched (laughs) it and dabbled from time to time. But yeah, I mean, that's why the clip against Toronto, like that was an awful game. The Pacers lost that game by 40 points. And that was some of the slog of this. Like they, they, at the end of the year, (laughs) they had some very lopsided losses, but um, that's why I love that possession so much because you're, Tyrese, independent of the jump passing, can kind of have some problems against switches sometimes, really, you know, breaking down lengthier defenders. And you're seeing him not only get by Pascal Siakam at the first level, but also sending OG Ananobi, who probably doesn't get recognized enough for his defense, out to the perimeter in a scheme that doesn't really aim to jump out to the perimeter. And the way that they fortify the paint, and he's still creating and optimizing a shot right under the basket for Jalen Smith.
0: So, and the. The, uh, the aspect of, of the article which I found fascinating is again the reason why you know the, the youth coach you don't jump in the air to make a pass is because you have a lot of turnovers um, but it seemed to me the thing you found was that he's you know it's almost he turns the ball over almost less relative to other kinds of passing on these on these jump passes
1: right so by my tabulation which I want people to know I put in the article that this was done by hand that wasn't an intentional flex by me as much as to say like I'm not a camera. I'm not a computer. There's probably some human error here. I did my best to track it accurately, but I am human. But I, I counted 15 total turnovers on the 248 passes he made. So you're looking at like a 6 per, 6% six turnover to pass rate. Um, part of the problem with comparing it to the other passes was when the NBA is tracking all of this, when you go to tracking data and look at passes, they're not putting how many turnovers he had on his passes Specifically to categorize what the turnovers were, so I decided to compare it to he had 84 total turnovers, 15 of them can be attributed to jump passes. So um, I didn't actually log how many bad passes he had in total. I wasn't really sure where I was going to track that down, but needless to say, it's still a very tiny number.
0: Yeah, I'm actually looking it up now because they, like they, they do categorize like the stuff in play-by-play data is you know it's a similar thing. It's a, it's a human track. It's a human noting it. But they do, they do, they do track, uh, you know, bad pass turnovers in, in NBA play-by-play data. So I'm, 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 uh, so i pulled up now on on Basketball Reference, and he had, let me see, he had fifty uh, with Indiana, he had fifty-eight bad pass turnovers last year. So,
1: okay, so
0: yeah. So like, so basically, only a, qu- a quarter of his of his turnovers were on 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 jump passes, and. That seems, like, actually, overall, that seems, like, slightly more often than others, but it was also, um, he was so productive on those passes that it's, it's like, the risk versus reward seems to still be in his favor. As you, you, you said, he had something like a 5-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio.
1: Right. Yeah, 75 you, assists to, to 15 turnovers, so...
0: And these aren't uh, these aren't you know a lot of people who who end up with uh, with really great assisted turnover ratios. It's because they're never taking risks. And I don't right. think we can I don't I don't think we can we can say that 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 someone uh, employing a lot of jump in the air and make a decision passes is not taking risks.
1: Right, and that's that's a good point too because I mean sometimes this is why assist can be like a fickle stat. I mean because. There's a difference between throwing a pass to somebody, you know, coming off a pin down and you don't have to do any manipulation. There's nothing to it. You're just passing to them out the three-point wing and, you know, manipulating out of the pick and roll and doing some of the stuff that Tyrese here is doing. Like, some of the assists count a little bit more.
0: Like, in, in, as you say, these are, these are situations where he is, he is either passing a guy open or, or just getting him open with his, you know, this is the essence of playmaking, essentially.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, optimizing the possession completely.
0: So you mentioned earlier, and I'm glad you brought that. You, you mentioned kind of the pain of uh, of collating this manually. Um, I get, I sort of get asked all the time about uh, by by coaches and, and and people at at sort of lower levels of basketball than the NBA, where we're not, you know, the 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 uh, the tracking data is not available and you still want to gain a lot of these insights and, and I, you know, you can still, you can still do these things. It's just, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a little more, little more blood, sweat and tears to do it. Um, this is the kind of thing that you do a fair amount though. I mean, maybe not as numerically focused as this in this case, but sort of that intersection between, you know, film study and analytics is, is always a, an interesting area to me. So, I don't know if I have a question here, just, you know, if you have, if you had thoughts or comments sort of on that aspect of things.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've done this, what you're saying, like I would say with the numbers, probably three or four articles. Probably the other most notable one that I can remember doing was during the hiatus. I had a lot of extra time and I had noticed that Nate McMillan had kind of started letting Sabonis grab the ball off the rim and do point Sabonis things. And I wanted to track and see like, how much does it actually affect the team? when a center is bringing the ball up the floor like are you actually getting into offense quicker what's the impact there so i basically had to watch all of his defensive rebounds that year which i think was like 1200 defensive rebounds to see if he actually pushed the ball and in total it only ended up being like 40 possessions so you know you can sit there and just click that link from nba.com and watch the defensive rebounds like yeah it was time consuming it was somewhat tedious but i've never done anything quite like this um cuz there's no link that you can click and just be like hey show me every one of Tyrese Halliburton's passes. You can click all of his assists, and you can click all of his turnovers, but that's not telling me what's happening on possessions that don't directly lead to that. I needed to see it all if I was going to, you know, really contextualize what I was seeing on the film. So, yeah, at first I was like, this is only 26 games. I mean, I'm not having to do it for a full season. That won't be so bad. I got to about game eight, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I could continue on. The journey is getting arduous <laughs> and I, I about wanted to bail, especially when I saw the clips like really piling up. I'm like, is my hard drive even going to handle this by the end? And am I even taking in information anymore? But I knew from some of what I was seeing that the payoff was going to be there. And obviously I hoped that the numbers were going to reflect that. And if they didn't, I would have written a much different story, but, um, fortunately what I was seeing with my eyes and what the numbers bared out were both right in lockstep.
0: So does this lead to, like, you know, um, the balance of sort of the time-consuming, the, the time-consuming nature and, and the insight being sort of worth, worth the, the effort? Um, you know, you're, you're someone who has, you know, the, the mind of a coach to some, uh, I would say. Like, is there any advice you'd give to, you know, sort of whether it's a high school coach or a college, someone, someone working at a level of basketball where you do have to, you know, analog it a little bit? in terms of the kinds of things and how one might, you know, gain insights. I mean, you mentioned earlier that this isn't perfect. Your count might not be perfect. I don't think it has to be because it's, it's, you know, we've certainly learned something interesting, even if you're off by one or two in, in a certain area.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was on, I was on Sam Bassini's podcast game theory probably two weeks ago, and I had kind of already knew that I was going to be writing this. And we were both talking about Tyrese at the end of it and, he was sharing his insights on why he thinks Tyrese is such a special passer. And I was kind of talking about what I'd seen from the outside in stuff and how a lot of this applied to eight. And um, he had mentioned that during the pre-draft process that a lot of people were like, you know, this is never going to work in the NBA. Tyrese can't do this at the NBA level. Like that's going to be a bunch of turnovers and whatever. And it turns out that being like this unique mover and doing things differently actually you know can bear out especially even against like what i said before a a raptors defense that you know i'm not saying that they're purposely giving up corner threes but they are somewhat willing to live with funneling shots to role players because of the way that they fortify the paint that maybe that there is this loophole that a player like this can address um i have not searched by nba all over to see how many other players are doing this one off the top of my head that i know that i've seen do this um was Trey Young in the play-in tournament game against the Cavaliers, and it was, it was super effective because he comes out. He had a very slow start in that game, as I recall, and he comes out in the third quarter, and the Cavs are still switching out onto him. So Jarrett Allen switches out to him on the perimeter. He shakes him at the first level, and then Evan Mobley is closing to him at the rim. So Trey Young, like Tyrese, purposely jumps, gets Evan Mobley to commit to him, and then uses a bounce pass like what Tyrese does, that I think is so special to get DeAndre Hunter a shot, a shot under the basket. Um, They are somewhat similar archetypes, not exactly, where I think, you know, if you have a player like that, that you're coaching, that maybe you don't see it as so black and white about what can work and what, what won't. Like if you have somebody with this degree of special talents, I say, let Tyrese Halliburton live, (laughs) especially, you know, I think that the biggest differentiator there is, is if you have somebody who can make these decisions on the way up, that's what you're aiming for. And that's what Tyrese does so well.
0: Just hearing hearing your description of it, the other player that that pop it's funny, just because you you, you uh, who's the player who always comes to mind if you talk about Trey Young is Luca, but it's it's you know from a it's a different physical movement, but but sort of his sort of slow euro is, is almost a very similar kind of kind of kind of situation to what what Halliburton is doing,
1: right? Because I mean, anytime I think anytime that you can have a player who does something where they move, and like I said, it's the simplest way I can put it, a unique mover who does something differently than what a lot of the league is doing, you should be looking to cash in on that because the defense is going to react. They're not used to reacting to it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So how would you go about evaluating whether, because I, I think the, the notion, well, that's not going to work at the NBA level, I think that, that, that that's a pretty sound kind of baseline to work from, I think. So how do you go about, how would you suggest going about evaluating? Well, okay, no, most people shouldn't do it, but he can.
1: I mean, I guess. like (laughs) That's a tough, tough question. I'm not super into the draft sphere. I only really dabbled in that this year. But I guess I would just be doing similar to what I did here. I mean, if I was in an NBA team deciding, am I going to draft Tyrese Halliburton, I think I would be watching every possible second of film i could and seeing how effective is he actually being with this and how will nba i mean this was something i did during the draft process how much will that change how will nba teams defend him um i think that it was reasonable if you believed in his floater at iowa and you saw him in pre-draft stuff to think hey the threat of that floater might be enough that we don't really need to care if he's going to jump on these passes around the basket and be making like I mean, it's like I said, it's a choice almost between emotion and reason when you watch him. Because if you just think of a lot of what he does, independent of Tyrese Halliburton, your your head really struggles to fathom it. Like, I really could not think when I was going through these clips of how many times I had seen somebody make a bounce pass from the air. And yet it works.
0: No, that that, that makes sense. Um, I guess so... You mentioning it, you know, kind of the, the his game at Iowa State. The one thing that you you brought up in the article is, is the one area where he kind of gets in trouble is is there are are spots where he is almost, you know, it, it's it's almost the the classic. Well, why aren't you trying to score instead of instead of instead of jumping in the air to pass? And if there was, I think that was a big criticism of him coming out of Iowa State is, you know, that, that he was not he did not have much of a scoring mentality.
1: Yeah. And I think that that still definitely applies. If I was to criticize anything about him and wanting to see what he does next year, that's a number one, because when you look at the numbers there, like I, I, when we were doing player review podcasts, I crunched the numbers and there was, I think 39 players in the NBA last year who averaged at least five minutes of time of possession. And the only one of the 39 who had a lower usage rate than Tyrese Halliburton was Kyle Lowry. Who obviously is, you know, a lot older than Tyrese and was playing a different role for Miami than what the Pacers are going to be hoping that Halliburton plays. And he also only led the team for the Pacers three times in field goal attempts after he was acquired. So um and and that deserves even more context when you think about it, because you know, Miles Turner, TJ Warren, Malcolm Brogdon, not really playing towards the back end of the season that much. So that means he was kind of deferring to guys who were, you know, some up on two way contracts playing sometimes buddy healed you know whoever it may be and i think that a lot of times tyrese can make the right decisions in those situations i definitely think that there's an inclusiveness to the way that he plays that i'm sure that his teammates like playing with him and that's definitely an intangible thing that should be taken into account but that there are spots like what you just said where it's very clear like okay even if you don't make that shot or even if you don't necessarily draw the foul at a certain point in time you need to be willing to at least try to draw the foul because his free throw rate isn't super high and and you want to see you know how much more can he spread his wings next year for the Pacers, given the way that that looks like their roster is constructed and what the goals are going to be for the team, if he's going to be willing to take more shots? Because, yeah, a lot of times I didn't think that the jump pass was the problem. I think that, you know, him making the pass was the problem. Time to call his own number on certain circumstances.
0: So over his time with the Pacers, did you, what did you see that made you think that he could, and what are some things that may, make you think he's going to struggle Um because uh, I, th- I think that you've identified sort of the um the sort of the possible blocker in terms of him becoming kind of an all star level player is you know frankly willingness to score i mean there's not a lot of 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 twenty usage guys who uh who you know hit that as perimeter players who kind of hit that level of play um and you know you know you have to kind of go back to to sort of pre injury rondo i i think um to, to think of the last one I can't think of any others off my top of my head. Um, so like where are areas you think that he has improved in terms of being more aggressive as a scorer, and where are things that are still lacking from his.
1: Yeah, so I, answers? yeah. I would say over the back end of the season, there was little things that both he and Rick Carlisle did that I think helped in certain spots. Um, Very early on, I want to say it was one of the first couple games they played. They were in Cleveland, or they were playing the Cavs, and J.B. Bickerstaff made the adjustment in the fourth quarter that they were going to switch Jared Allen and Evan Mobley out on everything. And it really stifled the Pacers' offense, in part because, you know, they don't really have an outlet currently for Tyrese to be throwing it inside to do anything. So he's kind of trying to break Evan Mobley down off the dribble. And like I said, it gets linked when he's on a switch. Like, his efficiency against switches and in isolation is good, but in part because he's very selective of when he actually takes some of these shots and he's more dependent on his three. So that was one thing. But little by little, like what I mentioned at the very end of the article, and what didn't end up being a shot for Tyrese, but you know, they're using if it's drop coverage, they're going to use Gortat screens or they're they're using flares of pins on the weak side so it makes it harder for those guys to pester the ball so that he will get a little bit deeper off of ball screens. And then some of it was just a mentality from him. I mean, they went up and played a game in Boston where he almost went perfect from the field, and he was a lot more aggressive looking for his three, but also like, okay, I got Al Horford out on a switch, he actually surged out to me, and I'm going to use my low gather, be crafty, get to the free throw line, and he's not somebody who's going to overwhelm me with physicality, he's not going to win a lot of hip and shoulder wars like somebody like Malcolm Brogdon will, but I wouldn't call him a grifter, but he can be crafty with his gather when he gets that first step into the free throw line to still draw contact, so... It did seem like he was being a little bit more willing there. And then also the other thing I would point to is he just started seeing a lot more, um, intense defensive coverage, I would say, over the time that he got there. So like the Kings aren't known as, you know, a defensive juggernaut by any stretch, but they are familiar with Tyrese Halliburton. So when they came to town, they put Davian Mitchell on Tyrese and it was very evident that they knew, Hey, We're going to weak to switch him. So we're going to weak him to his left and then switch the big on to him. We know that this is going to cause him problems, and it did for roughly the first quarter. But then by the end of the game, he had had a 15-assist-zero turnover game. And while his scoring efficiency wasn't great, you could see the adjustments and how the wheels in his head were turning that, hey, this is intensified coverage, but I'm going to find my way through it, and Rick Carlisle is going to adjust what sets we're running as we go. That I think that those types of adjustments – show me that he's willing to adapt to that. And then you also look at their roster for next year. Like, you know, it's going to be Benedict Mather and potentially either Chris Duarte or Buddy yield Jalen Smith, if Miles Turner is still on the roster. That's a lot of, you know, spacing around him where the responsibility is going to be on him to put the primary bend on the defense because he's mainly the guy out there on the floor who can do something in the pick and roll. So it's kind of going to be, you know, sink or swim and find out exactly how far he's willing to take them.
0: And it seems like in that environment, like the ability to really pressure the rim is something that like the, like a floater, a 45% floater is fine. That doesn't, that doesn't beat you. That's like a, that's a good counter, but I don't know if if you can, I I would think against smarter teams, you kind of, okay, if he's going to beat us shooting that shot, we're just going to stay, you know, we're going to face guard the, the shooters and, 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 well, if you make if you make t- uh, ten of fourteen floaters and you beat us with those, okay, but that's not that's not a, a, a long term profitable strategy. So is, yeah, it-
1: yeah, and that's why I was that's why I was fairly uh, bullish on them getting DeAndre Ayton with the offer sheet. To be honest with you, because I think that he needs to pair with somebody who's going to be you know an elite level play finisher, role man who's going to be moving toward the basket. Which, you know, maybe Miles Turner shows more of that next season, depending upon what his situation is. But to this point in time, I don't think he's ever rolled on more than 50% of his screens. And that's not just the Sabonis thing, because when he was still the starting five, he was rolling on like 25% of his screens as the screener. So um, I think that's what adds more deception to what Tyrese is doing, is by having somebody there who can provide, you know, whether it's vertical spacing or just rolling hard to the basket, being big and being able to finish. You know, you have to account for, is he going to, is he, is it going to be a floater? Is it going to be a lob or is it going to be a skip pass? If that person isn't there and it's just the pick and pop. And he's already somebody who doesn't get super deep off of ball screens. You could kind of see that in the pick and pop section. He's not necessarily dragging the defense far away from the popper. Like he's capable of doing it. He can make reads all over the floor, but at a certain point in time, you have to ask like, yeah, he can optimize these other guys, but is this optimizing him? So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you 100%. His rim frequency's never been very high, so it's, it's kind of like what's going to help him to get there.
0: It, it's always struck me, my, sort of my basic theory on this has always been in like a, like a pick-and-roll kind of construct. You sort of want there to be opposites. If, if the, the ball handler is someone who likes to turn the corner and get to the rim, you pair him with someone who likes to, you know, pop or float or something like that. If it's someone who likes to, you know, come off and survey – then it seems like you're better off with like a, like a, you know, a dive and dunk type. Absolutely.
1: I agree with that.
0: And, and it's, so it seems, but it seems like the Pacers as constructed just have a bunch of spacers rather than, that it's someone who's going to, uh, you know, trade, create any sort of threat on the rim without the
1: ball. Yeah. I mean, and to a degree, like, and I'll do this in broad strokes, but I think you could kind of say the same thing. Couldn't you about the Mavericks with Luca when Rick Carlisle was there? Um, there wasn't really necessarily a big who was going to put a lot of pressure on the rim in that situation either. It was kind of sur- surrounding Luca with you know spot up threats and not a lot of secondary ball handlers. So it's I mean, that was similar- Dwight
0: Powell basically. Like that was, I think yeah. that was he was sort of the best option they had on that. And 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 I think that's part of part of why Dwight Powell was always such sort of a a safety blanket, maybe beyond his what his sort of overall like skill and talent level might suggest.
1: Yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, Isaiah Jackson's developing into that role off the bench. I mean, assuming that, again, that Miles Turner's back, he'll be off the bench. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's a valid question to ask as they move forward. But at the other end of it, I guess they're going to know exactly how willing Tyrese is going to be to do it and how much he can do it because there's not a lot of other options.
0: It's, uh, it's a little, little bit of force-feeding here. Um For you, sure. You... So you brought up the 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 Aiton thing, and I guess that's a that's a decent way to to segue into talking about sort of the the overall direction. Um, first of all, that was that was that was surprising because um, the Pacers historically have not been a team that did offer sheets, and this is I I want to say this is like part, either the first or second time they've actually you know made a made an offer to someone in in restri- or signed someone to a to an offer sheet in restricted free agency. Um, Possibly to their detriment at times, where they've they've been, you know, more amenable to doing sign and trades than than doing a, a straight up offer sheet.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting dynamic, and I, I know people have strong feelings about it in Indiana. I mean, they weren't even really that prickly with this one. I mean, they did they did make the Herb Simon allowed them to make the jump to do it. I think that the last time they did it was actually with Chris Copeland out in New York, and I don't think. That the New York the Knicks were planning on retaining Chris Copeland, as I recall, um, they did get Malcolm Brogdon in restricted free agency, but that ended up being a sign and trade. It wasn't an offer sheet. Um, Herb Simon just, I guess, has feelings that he doesn't want to hurt his fellow trade partners. And maybe, you know, maybe if you make a deal with that team down the road sometime in the future, those people are more willing to work with you because you took that approach. That's not what I would do if I was the owner. I don't think that that would really matter to me that much. If I wanted to get a player, I would go out and try to get the player, but. Um, there has been little movement that I think has been interesting to track because there's been so many things over the last year that people are like, well, the Pacers aren't going to go through a rebuild. Herb Simon would never do that. And then you know they traded off veteran players. They lost the last ten games of the season. Or you know, oh, you know, the Pacers would never trade a player for just picks. They're going to go after young players because that's what they, that's what Herb Simon prefers to do. Well, they traded Karis Levert to the Cavs for Ricky Rubio's expiring in picks. And it's like, oh, well, the Pacers will never play in restricted free agency. And then, you know, Herb Simon at least did it. So that leads me to believe that something's going on in the front office, whether it's, you know, Kevin Pritchard and, and Kelly Crosskopf and Chad Buchanan being able to move him on certain things. Or if that's somewhat Rick Carlisle's influence that they have gotten him to amend his opinions on certain ways that the Pacers have operated in the past. Sure. So
0: and i think just, just the fact that they they that they went after aiton i mean this is not a, hardly a novel observation on uh, my part but uh i mean you've you've basically alluded to it several times already if miles turner is on the team like you know for, for as much as i think like phoenix maybe screwed up the relationship management aspect of the aiton situation I, I don't, know. I don't know if one would would say this is an own goal in that regard, but it's it's got to be at least a little bit awkward.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, I mentioned that whenever it happened. I mean, the one thing I will say there is, and I won't speak for Miles, but there had been reporting early in the summer before they had ever even been connected to and that Miles wasn't planning on signing an extension this offseason. If that's the case and you know that you have the potential to get a center who's, in my opinion, top five, top seven, and fits better with Tyrese than what Miles currently does, I think that it would almost be malpractice on your part if you don't go do that. And 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 they also have the benefit now, which, I mean, certain players that have left the team, we can critique. I don't really agree with Paul George's stance about, you know, him saying that he tried to recruit Anthony Davis to the Pacers, and the Pacers wouldn't do anything about it. Like, I don't know who they were trading to get Anthony Davis, but that's an aside. They have shown to Tyrese that they're willing to go out and do what it takes to win, but you know, again, Miles is a human being, and this is different than when they went after Gordon Hayward, where they could come back to the table and be like, hey, you know, yeah, we tried to trade Miles for Gordon Hayward, but that was at a position of need. Now they've gone after a guy at his own position, so, you know, it seems like Miles has recently made some statements about still liking and wanting to be in Indiana, but for me, from both sides' perspective, I don't know how much I'm going to think about that until I actually see ink to paper, that it's really going to change my opinion. Like, if you're not going to sign an extension, then, you know that doesn't
0: really change my mind all that much. Sure. Uh, Abdurrahman has been uh, waiting patiently with the, with the question. and Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, so uh, why don't you un- unmute and uh, go ahead. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome on, as always. How come, sis. How's it going? Great. So, glad you brought up uh, my channel because I to ask about his ability to attack switches because... He has a pretty
1: high, <coughs> decent tr- frequency on post-ups and have uh, good uh, post-up efficiency. So is he a is
0: he a post-up uh, guy against uh, fourths or threes, or he just have more like Brook Lopez because the Lakers are interested in him. On him,
1: and I think he is the best player available. Yeah. So the switches thing is I would say over the last like year and a half, he's gotten a little bit more patient against the switch where in the past you might have seen him. He kind of wants to react before he's really assessed what the defense is doing. And I think this year he got a little bit more patient with it. But for the most part, like I can point to certain games where it's like, okay, like maybe he can score a few times against that, but is it ideal that the Boston Celtics have you know, Robert Williams defending Torrey Craig, which was their strategy, but then also Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are on the floor. And they're having Josh Richardson check Miles Turner for several possessions in a row. I don't know that that's necessarily what you want. It's almost like Amy Yadoka was kind of baiting that matchup to try to get, you know, the Pacers to go to that. Or, you know, there were times up in Chicago where the Bulls would check him with DeMar DeRozan rather than a big, and, you know, if if he scored on some of
0: those... I, I, I sort of great, feel like but. that's 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 an ultimate kind of... That's a, that, that is a signal right there. It's like, yeah, we're going to put, like, you know, whatever else you want to say about DeMar DeRozan. Uh, he has struggled against bigger players as a defender, it's fair to say. If you want to go back to, I want to say, the 2015 playoffs, if I have that right, when they lost to, when the Raptors lost to the 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 nets the reason main reason they lost is uh joe johnson just took him took him to the woodshed for the entire series
1: yeah exactly so i mean it, it's 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 saying something in the sense that they're willing to do that in the first place which they're playing tomorrow at the four in that game and a lot of times people will point to you know he's out there with sabonis and i get that um most teams are going to guard sabonis with their five rather than miles but um, even before Sabonis was started, the starter, you could point to certain games where you know they'd be in Utah and Rudy Gobert would guard Thaddeus Young and Boyan Bogdanovich would guard Miles or Ben Simmons would guard Miles and Joel Embiid would guard Thaddeus Young. So it's not necessarily him having the opportunity to pull rim protectors into space if he's going to do that, if he shoots the three at a high enough clip. Um, teams are willing to cross-match him, so I think sometimes he can make shots on that, but there's not... Teams don't often make an adjustment beyond that. It's just like, okay, well, if he makes some of these shots, like you know, he had like a thirty-point game when Sabonis didn't play against the Rockets. They blitzed and did not tag him on the roll, and then they switched their small guys onto him in the post. He scored. He played well, but like it didn't. As the game went on, they didn't change anything that they were doing. So that's kind of the one thing that if he is back on the Pacers and if he does produce at a higher level, I'll be very intrigued to see how he reacts once defenses. More start reacting to him because I haven't seen a lot of that to this point.
0: So it's interesting. You 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 were I mean you were you were bullish on the the possible fit with Aiton, and yet a lot of your description of of sort of Turner's post up game uh, kind of meshes with like frequent criticisms I've had of Aiton, which which is in terms of well I I've got the ball I'm sort of open I'm just gonna shoot. Regardless of who's of who's covering me, and like you know, Aiton is is a better shooter than a better has better touch from sort of those intermediate areas and around the basket than Turner does. But still, uh, you know, in terms of taking advantage of size mismatches, that's I think that's been a pretty frequent criticism of Aiton over his career.
1: Yeah, I mean, that definitely showed up in that series against the Mavericks at times. I mean, I think that you want him to play with more consistent force. I think that's the word that I would use yeah. most. But you know he at least has the hook shot to rely on. And what I watched when I was doing my film study on him is, is, there's not a lot of teams that are willing to switch against him. And that's kind of the difference. Whereas opponents will sometimes cross match directly from the get with miles. Aiden has the degree of size and has the play finishing where they don't do it as much. And I would say that, you know, while it's maybe not, and, and I don't think a Rick Carlisle offense is going to run a lot of straight up post-ups anyways, like he'll be a guy where if you do switch on the pick and roll, he's automatically going and getting to that at the front of the rim for somebody to throw it there. I mean, I do think it's a definite upgrade over what the Pacers had in terms of having an interior seismics match. And also like, this is like year eight of me watching miles do this. Whereas, you know, eight <laughs> and 23. So I think that, you know, maybe if he's in a different situation where, you know, it's not a contending team and he would have been playing with Tyrese and the Pacers, maybe some of that areas of his game blossoms a little bit more in a different environment where, as maybe, you know, as you're continuing to watch Miles, maybe that is more just what he is at this point in time.
0: Sure. So that that seems like the biggest sort of domino yet to fall for the Pacers is the disposition of, of Miles Turner.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, they did show that he had his camp in Texas and Rick Carlisle was there. It kind of is reminding me a little bit of what the Victor situation was after they left the bubble and that it's, probably at this point, unless the Lakers are going to be willing to include that second pick. I don't really know how many teams there are with how many have addressed their center position. Like in the past, you could point to, Hey, Minnesota's had interest for about a year, but you know, now they've traded for Rudy Gobert. You know, other teams have drafted centers like the Hornets drafted Mark Williams or, you know, what other teams have been linked to him don't necessarily have as big of a void there as what they did a year ago. So I could see a situation where both sides might think, hey, it's to our benefit to stay in this marriage a little while longer. And even if you aren't going to sign an extension, you know, maybe you recoup some of your trade value. Maybe you get more suitors. And, you know, he does have incentive to play well. He's entering a contract year. So um, the Pacers do have that working in their favor.
0: So what do you, so I think that gets to a sort of a broader, like, what does the Pacers season look like this year? Um, is this a? It doesn't seem like a roster that's really ready to push for for a playoff or even play-in spot. But as you say, uh, you know, kind of for lack of a better term, tanking is not something that the Pacers have done, and it's certainly not something that I don't think that Rick Carlisle signed up for.
1: Yeah, it's almost been somewhat of an interesting. I wouldn't say a shift. Completely on that, but when you heard them give interviews in Las Vegas, I mean, from the players to Rick Carlisle, it sounded like they know that this is going to take time, that this is a youth movement, that they're going to have guys and they're going to have room to let them play through mistakes. Um, I know that I had read an interview that Lloyd Pierce did with Alex Kennedy where he kind of mentioned, like, hey, you know, we don't, we have, we get to put our own stamp on this roster. It's not an inherited roster. So being able to have young guys come in there, I mean, Rick Carlisle was on record. Jared Greenberg last year when they were playing the Heat had asked Rick Carlisle, like, retroactively, if you had known that a team was going to go into a rebuild in your first year, would you have gone there? And according to Jared Greenberg, Rick Carlisle said no. But maybe now that he's in it, and they have Tyrese Halliburton, who I know he thinks a lot of, that, you know, the entire franchise does as a franchise caliber point guard. Maybe you're excited about what you get to build and, and you know, there isn't as much pressure there that you have to win now. Um, It just seems to me like their energy is very much like from the front office on down that they understand that this isn't going to turn around tomorrow, that this is something that's going to take time. And I do think that they have, like I mentioned before um shifted some of herb simon's opinions on what has happened just because of what we just saw them do like i said they lost the final 10 games of the year with veterans sitting out at the end of the season i don't think if you asked pacer fans two or three years ago if that's something the Pacers would do that many of them would have said yes
0: i i think that uh, years on the deal has a way of uh, of making coaches more comfortable with true with, with that like it like um you know there's been uh, I don't think we need to search that far to see situations where a team has, you know, gone a certain direction, and yet they've just they've still decided that the coach wasn't good enough. Now, Carlisle probably has enough gravitas that that's not not going to happen for him. So that that probably has a way of assuaging some of those concerns, right?
1: Yeah, I would think so, especially given that you know I think that they're paying him like seven million. I'm trying to think what it's. I mean, it was a big contract over the four years that they that they offered him per year, so. I think that there's definite incentive for both sides to keep going. Sure. Um,
0: So let's, let's close up on this. I know you, you are often uncomfortable, like since you're, you're, you tend to be so focused on the, on the Pacers, but you know, I respect your basketball mind enough to, to ask anyway, if there's sort of broader things you've taken away from this off season that you think that you're kind of expecting to see, you know, heading into next year
1: selfishly I think that my broader takeaway is that uh I'm kind of personally hoping that these situations whether it's with Donovan Mitchell or Kevin Durant or whatever else is going to happen with the Pacers and their cap space get resolved because I'm just thinking back to last year where most of the NBA discourse for I don't know how much of the season (sighs) surrounded Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons and not a lot of the actual basketball that was going on so I'm kind of hoping that wherever Kevin Durant's going to play is going to be decided and wherever Donovan Mitchell's going to play is going to be decided. And we can talk about what basketball they're playing for whatever teams they're going to be playing for instead of constant, you know, trade request watch.
0: Well, that is, that is, that is preaching to the choir. Um, you know, I think the the transaction game has its place and, and Hey, it's uh, it's, it's August. So that's, that's, that's the time and place for it. But yeah, I, I, um the the Really, the, the, the nadir of it for me was, I think, pregame, game six of the finals. Suddenly, there's, a, there's an on-court report about what the Kings are going to do with their draft pick. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, why? Yeah, I what? Yes,
1: what are I we commented. doing? Yeah, they're on the parquet of TD Garden. And the Pacers were mentioned about that because of potentially wanting Jaden and Ivy. And exactly. It's like, this is what we're talking about. They're in the middle of the NBA finals. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully I can, uh, when, when there is more actual basketball to talk about, I can have you back on and and we can, uh, you know, uh, see what, uh, what's going on with the Pacers and, and hopefully, you know, from, from our standpoint as, uh, as outsiders, since it's probably fair to say the Pacers might not be the most interesting on-court team this year, uh, that, that you have a chance to, you know, take in kind of the broader league and give us some of your thoughts on, uh, on what you're seeing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've heard that a lot. It was kind of funny. I've I've done a lot of podcasts over roughly the last two weeks, and I keep telling people, <laughs> I was really getting dusty over about six months there. I didn't hear from anybody because nobody wanted to talk about the Pacers, and then between Aiton and the Lakers and, and other stuff, people wanted to hear about the Pacers again. But, yeah. yeah, I've had a lot of people advising me that I need to start covering other teams. <laughs> well,
0: I wouldn't say covering other teams, but, uh, but again, I think you you've, and I've told you this privately is that, you know, I think you, you, uh, you're overly reticent to talk about teams that you're not as expert on as the, as the Pacers when like your, your eye is astute enough that I don't think that I don't think you would need to watch every jump pass that Luka Doncic <laughs> to have intelligent thoughts on the, on the
1: Mavericks. I'll put it that way. I hold myself to a high standard.
0: Well, that, that in itself is good. Um, uh you know, well uh, before I let you go, you want to uh tell the folks where they can what you're working on now where they can find you?
1: Right. So my handle's at C two underscore Cooper. I'm at Indie Cornerrow's a couple times a week. We have a podcast there though. We've had some scheduling conflicts lately um between everything that Mark and I are doing. So um the the pass on the jump passes is still up front and center and then i do have another project that's not quite as tedious as that one that i i would like to get to but we got to see what else happens with you know the pacers and cap space and whatnot in august here
0: well thanks a lot for for joining and hopefully uh speak to you again over the course of this coming season
1: i hope so too thanks for having me
0: now, thanks a lot and i am back i believe on wednesday to talk another uh barnberger of a team uh talking the Detroit pistons and and uh Caitlin mentioned Jaden Ivy. I want to hear all about Jaden Ivy from, uh, from James Edwards of The Athletic. Uh,
1: so that'll be on Wednesday afternoon and uh, speak to you all then. Thanks for listening.